Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with the Chair. I'm Captain Nick James, your MEC chairman, and joining me today is Ben Jensen, Training and Testing Committee Chairman here at Endeavor. Ben is also a member of the National Training Council, along with uh, participating in a Human Factors in Training work group. We'll be talking to Ben in this episode about current events inside the training and testing realm, ranging from CQ to upgrade to PTRB issues. At the end of today's podcast, we will be answering a pilot question. And remember, if you have a question or an idea for a topic for us to address, please email edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. So what's new for 2021? Well, something that happened in January is we hosted our first of three scheduled MEC meetings, and that occurred the 25th through the 28th. On the first day of the MEC meeting, the MEC typically travels in in the morning, and then we hear from the three MEC officers, the chairman, the vice chairman, and the secretary treasurer on the ongoings of the MEC and union business at the officer level uh, since the last MEC meeting, which was in October. And we also had a chance to hear from the pilot to pilot committee chairman, Captain uh, Brett Polina. Captain Polina went over staffing on the P2P committee the training events that they have been conducting in anticipation of hosting more events throughout 2021 and 2022, and then took some time to answer questions from the MEC. The next day, we heard from Captain Chuck Bates, uh, the negotiating committee chairman, on ongoing negotiations for things such as synchronistic RGS or a complete LMS system. We also had a detailed discussion in closed session on the all-pilot survey results. We are going to be doing a special podcast later this month to discuss some of the items in that survey. We're also going to be hosting a all-pilot conference call tentatively scheduled right now for the first week of March to also go over those survey results. Next, we heard from Scheduling Committee Chairman uh, Captain Chad Potter. We all know that the schedule quality out here at Endeavor is, is very poor. Even though we are up to close to 90% daily departures of our pre-COVID levels, the utilization rate of these aircraft still remain um, historically low, and that is causing large gaps in the schedule. It's causing long sits, and it's causing inefficiencies that really hamper our block per duty. As our block per duty lowers, it decreases days off in, in a lot of positions. Uh, unfortunately, until our utilization, until our overall block hours increases, there's a limited amount that the scheduling committee can do to improve schedule quality at this point. However, they are still trying to keep track of minimizing the long sits and increasing efficiencies to the maximum extent possible. The next topic on Tuesday, we heard from our Chief 119 pilot, Captain Tom Wycor. Uh, Captain Wycor came in to talk specifically about uh, operational issues, uh, crew room amenities, chief pilots uh, in the different domiciles, and he did a great job addressing the MEC for about an hour and a half on their various questions and concerns that you have raised to them. And it, we always thank Tom for being able to come in and address the MEC directly. We closed out uh, that day with some discussions on our flight pay loss and comp day policy rewrite, which was passed by the MEC the next day, and also went through a session about uh, Section 19 expectations from Jane Schraft, our senior labor relations attorney. On Wednesday, we started off uh, with the Central Air Safety Committee presentation that was led by Captain Vaughn DeHart. 
Vaughn briefed the MEC on the progress on ASAP FOCA Crosstalk. ASAP FOCA Crosstalk is a program that has the ability to be able to incorporate FOCA data into the corrective action process and certainly could enhance the safety um, of the airline through better corrective actions, but it also creates an industrial risk because FOCA data then could be uh, viewed and used by the FAA. So when the company came to us with the idea, we said certainly we could look at an opportunity or look what a program might look like here, but we're certainly not going to commit to that program until we can understand that industrial risk. So there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, and Vaughn just wanted to update the MEC on that progress. As part of that, we are also wanting the company to look at revising our fatigue language. We understand that right now, the way the fatigue programs works is it doesn't completely separate um, discipline and fatigue. And we need to be able to do that because in the current system, if a pilot uh, were to receive an occurrence over a fatigue call and they were to receive more than four occurrences in a rolling 12 months, that could lead to a level one advisor. And we don't believe that fatigue and safety, or excuse me, safety and discipline should ever be mixed in the same bucket. So we're looking also to increase and enhance that safety program as well. We next heard from Captain uh, Tyler Adams, who leads the Pilot Assistance Committee and all of the strong work that he and Jim Libazowski has done on the contact tracing and pilot protocols. So we really thank uh, their efforts. The afternoon mostly was spent uh, prepping for the executive leadership team visit. Um, as always, the executive leaders of the, uh, excuse me, of Endeavor uh, were able to come out to the MEC meeting to brief the MEC directly, answer their questions and talk to them. This included Jim Graham, Joe Miller, Russ Elander, Jay Furnish joined us on the phone, as did uh, David Driscoll, the company's uh, attorney. And so we spent about two to two and a half hours with the executive leadership team, again, uh, asking a, a plethora of questions on a variety of issues. The three things that I will bring to your attention, uh, we obviously ask questions about career progression, its status, how we are able to work together to move forward. We ask the same style of questions as far as overall bargaining philosophies are concerned. Um, and we also talked to the company about our concern about seeing a significant uptick in grievances this year, uh, last year, excuse me. Um, the number of grievances that uh, the association had to file was up 50% year over year. And so that's a trend, you know, that we obviously want to change and how can we work collaboratively to get that done. And so we spent, like I said, about two to two and a half hours speaking with the uh, executive leadership team. And we do thank them for coming out to the MEC meeting as they always do. Our last day finished up with a presentation um, by Captain Bridget Matteris, our hotel committee uh, chairman. She has done a very good job with a distinct lack of short uh, stay language in trying to improve uh, property quality. But we do know from her presentation and from the feedback that you have provided us in the survey that brand quality as far as short stay hotels is an important priority uh, for the pilots. And so we're gonna look for opportunities to be able to make that happen for you. And then we wrapped up the MEC meeting with a presentation by Sam Friedman Cowan, who is not only our first officer rep in New York City, he also is the grievance committee chairman. And he talks specifically about some ongoing grievances, um, some remedy requests uh, that needed the pilot, or excuse me, the MEC group's attention, and overall staffing levels and trends within the grievance environment. So we thank Sam for his presentation. After that, we uh, adjourned the meeting and, and wrapped up union business for the week. And so overall, it was a, a very productive and very good meeting, and it was a great way to start 2021. All right, well, switching gears now, we're going to 
introduce Ben Jensen to the show, who is going to talk to you about some training and testing issues. Ben, welcome. Why don't you take a few minutes and introduce yourself to the pilot group? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Nick, and thanks for everybody for listening today. Uh, my name is Ben Jensen. A lot of you have run into me over the years uh, in the training department, whether it's ground school, uh, in the old traditional face-to-face -face classrooms, uh, or talking to you through the computer on WebEx recently, uh, or probably uh, more so in the sim uh, as my my uh, most frequent role in the company is a 900 PCP. So if you're coming through CQ, you might see me there. Uh, as Nick said, uh, I'm the chairperson of your local training and testing committee. Uh, and by virtue of having that position, I am a member of the National Training Council within the Air Safety Organization out in DC. Uh, and then I'm also helping as of the last year on the Human Factors and Training Working Group as the Assistant Director of Training out at Alpa National. All right, Ben, well, that kind of gives us an idea of who you are, but who is on your committee and what kind of work do they do? Absolutely. Yeah, we've we've got a great group of uh, committee members right now. Uh, there's six of us in total at the moment. Uh, my vice chairman is Michael O'Leary, uh, also a PCP on both aircraft. Um, we've got Steve Shields, an APD on both aircraft. Peter Kuharski, who's out uh, flying the line and teaching ground school for us. We've got Greg Schanch, uh, who is a sim instructor, and Jade Shiwi, as you know, also uh, various roles within the training department, and of course, our MEC secretary treasurer. So as, as you can see, everybody on the committee is from the training department. We know the ins and outs of training and are here to support you. Uh, whenever you have a question about your training progression, uh, or in the event that you unfortunately have an onset, we review and, and support you in that process as well. Well, I think that kind of leads us directly into the next question, which is, you know, what does the training and testing committee do? What value and services do you provide? Because as pilots, we all go through training, right? We go through initial training, we go through CQ, we go through upgrade, we always go through these training footprints. So how does the training and testing committee help when things are going well? And more importantly, how do they help when things aren't going so well? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think that's a wonderful topic to hit on because a lot of folks don't know who we are, or what we're doing. Um, the biggest thing that we spend our time, I, I would say the most time consuming thing that we have is, is um, just direct pilot to pilot contact, whether it's somebody that's got a question as they go through training, wanting to know how to best position themselves for whatever's coming up, uh, whether it's their initial or their upgrade or they're switching into the different variant uh, and the differences course. Um, keeping them on the right track in the first, uh, to begin with is obviously the goal, but if somebody unfortunately has an unsat or a failure to progress, we're also here to help them best position themselves to get back on the right track. So we have something in section 11 B of the JCBA covers your training progression. And within that structure, uh, it's divided up into short-term and long-term training, and we don't have to spend too much time on that. It just has to do with which course of training you're in. But no matter what course of training you're in, we have something called the Pilot Training Review Board if somebody does have that trouble. So if it's just not getting signed off for a check ride or having a check ride that unfortunately ends in an onset. So what the Pilot Training Review Board is, is it's made up of seniority list pilots, both from our training and testing committee and from the training management structure. Uh, most often the folks that we're working with, the many of you know Matt Morris, uh, and Eric Allen, as well as Adam Mattoon, some of our, our training management team. So our committee works with uh, those individuals or their designees from the training department to review what's gone on in that pilot's training. And both sides, 
have the same goal, and that's getting the pilot the custom retraining that they need to get back on their feet and be successful. Yeah, my understanding um, is that we have done a very good job on the Endeavor MEC side and on the management side of sharing common goals and commonality when it comes to the success of a student. So I think we've done a great job there, and the three aforementioned uh, management team leaders, I think they've done a great job on their side of making sure that the priority is your successful progression through your training footprint. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And uh, from my vantage point in some of the open national roles that I've had, uh, the review board process varies a bit from airline to airline. And I'm very happy to report to all Endeavor pilots that we have a very robust pilot supportive contract when it comes to training. Uh, management definitely sees the value in getting people back on track. Uh, nobody's out to get anybody, so to speak. Uh, we want to see everybody's success. Um, and it, we, we've enjoyed a very good working relationship with those on the management team uh, and work with them uh, as a part of the training department ourselves too. So it just naturally lends itself uh, to a supportive culture to, to uh, make sure everybody's getting what they need. You know, so as pilots and, and really more as people, we always tend to focus on what we don't do well versus what we do well. The vast majority of pilots get through their training footprints, again, whether it's initial or CQ or upgrade, they get through there without any hiccups. But we're always nervous that a hiccup is going to occur. And so when we look at, you know, unsats, you know, or we look at uh, times where we're not progressing in our training footprint, you know, Ben, what are you seeing and what is the training and testing committee seeing as the biggest reasons pilots are failing to progress through their training footprint? That's another great question. And we, we spend a lot of time, um, anytime somebody's going into a new position, whether it's uh, you're a new hire with the company and you're going through your initial training or whether you're upgrading for the first time. Anytime somebody's in one of those positions, we go in and talk to the ground schools uh, with training management. Um, uh, it's usually Bill Heinz, one of our supervisors there. Um, and what we do is, is we cover the, again, how to be successful talk. And this is the topic that probably comes up the most is, what should I be looking for in training? Where are the commonalities in any of the, the failures that are out there? And I would have to say that nine times out of 10, it falls into that, that bucket of soft skills. And anytime you come to training, you hear us talk about those. Um, and there's reason for that. All the data points to once you're, you're beyond your general aviation days and you're flying professionally as a 121 pilot, generally we don't see 121 pilots go off the side of the runway because they forget what the rudder pedals do. It's a breakdown in threat and error management. And we've all heard about the error change and the human element of things. So um, nine times out of 10, like I said, the soft skills are the biggest hurdle for most. It's just the, the threat and error management, uh, management of your team. Uh, and most often, uh, it probably falls into the two topics of time and workload management. Pilots are rushing, they're taking on too many tasks, getting tasks saturated, not asking for help when they need it. So uh, we're still kind of unfortunately seeing folks that are in that old individual maneuver-based uh, training mentality where they think everything's on their individual shoulders and just not thinking as a team. Well, I know every time I go through CQ, and I just actually went through CQ again uh, last month, my focus is, do I know my systems? Do I know my profiles and callouts? Do I know the relevant sections of the CFM and FOM? You know, do I know those things? Because I mechanically want to make sure that I've got that stick and rudder and that knowledge skills. And what you're think, I think you're saying is all of those individual components are great. But you have to be able to put all of those components together, along with being able to manage what you what is described as threat and error. Um, but really, just to manage the flight properly as a leader, 
and you know, in, in case of about half of our pilot group as a captain as well. You've got to be able to manage that appropriately. And that's where we're seeing um, some failures. I don't think it's uh, probably any higher than any other airline that, that we're looking at, probably right in line with, with whatever other carriers are experiencing. But that's where we're seeing the failures. And that's really what CQ or the AQP program, excuse me, the AQP program is really supposed to highlight. It is not a proficiency check anymore. It's not that you can just do a V1 cut without going off the side of the runway. It's that you can actually manage the day-to-day -day operations appropriately. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and, and when you talk about uh, readiness coming to training, we all know that we need to sit in front of the books. We all memorize the calls. We all memorize the numbers that we're supposed to memorize, limitations and memory items. And uh, I've got to get uh, give credit to a fellow colleague, uh, APD Ross Tano. I uh, worked uh, with Ross a lot over the years, and one of my favorite phrases of his is, as you're sitting at home, it all looks good on paper. Uh, then you get into the sim and that human element takes over and we get distracted, we get task saturated, we don't ask for help um, and, and create time as necessary. So you're absolutely true. It's, it's the management of all that stuff that looks good on paper uh, where it really, the rubber meets the road. I actually just had Ross uh, in one of my sim sessions, and he was great to work with as always. So, yeah, he's definitely a good guy. So let's switch gears a little bit, and let's talk about some new things that we're seeing in this industry, uh, both here at Endeavor and kind of on the macro level, which is distance learning. Um, here at Endeavor, we have switched from having an uh, in-person ground school to a what we're calling a synchronistic RGS or a WebEx platform or a virtual platform. So I know that you've had discussions both here at Endeavor and at the national level about challenges that this presents, quality versus cost, so on and so forth. So I think the pilots would be interested in hearing your insights as what you think about synchronistic RGS virtual learning. Yeah, um, it's a topic near and dear to my heart, uh, not only as your training rep to make sure that you get the training that you need and, and fair and just um, evaluations, uh, but also as somebody who teaches myself, these are tools that I'm utilizing to try to, to best train pilots. Um, the industry is changing. There's no doubt about that. Um, we don't sit in front of a, a um, overhead projector uh, like we did when we were in, in grade school. We don't sit and look at VHS tapes anymore. There's going to be changes, right? Um, so we never want to give the impression that we're uh, opposed to change. What we absolutely do want, though, is we don't want to see, uh, we oppose any degradation of quality. Uh, and any time that there's something new that rolls out, there's hiccups. Um, and, and we've seen some of those hiccups. Um, and we want to reiterate, even as we're, we're sharing some of maybe our concerns or complaints, uh, we do, uh, again, share a really good working relationship with our training department. And Endeavor has, has actually kind of been at the forefront of taking things online um, and doing, especially the synchronous instructor-led training, um, we're doing a lot more than, than say other carriers have and just experiencing that and, and getting it off uh, and running. Now, with that being uh, stated, uh, there have been some hurdles that we've run into um, and uh, opinions can go you know, one direction or the other with it, whether we like it, whether we don't like it, but uh, we can be pretty clear about some of the hurdles that we've had Tech issues have probably been uh, one of the top two uh, topics, and I can talk about that. And the other has just been environmental concerns. Uh, we're simply not sitting in a classroom. We're in front of a, an iPad or a computer or whatever device that you're on. So with the tech issues, um, you know, everybody has experienced a, a problem with their computer. Um, it just happens, and sometimes it happens while you're sitting in ground school trying to digest 
uh, these important safety-related, uh, you know, knowledge knowledge items. So um, we have to we have to make sure that nobody's getting lost in class. It's sometimes hard for the instructor to know who's absorbing the material versus who's got a question or a puzzled look on their face because we can't see you. <laughs> Other tech issues have been, you know, other than the presentation and the, the the questions of, you know, how do I best participate when I can't see people and, and I have to click a mouse to talk. Um, some of the testing issues I know some of you have run into over the, uh, the past summer and fall, and those have gotten better as we've learned more about the technology, but it's no fun when you're halfway or most of the way through a test and it disappears and you have to take another test on the same day with all fresh questions. That's stressful for anybody. So we would really like to work with management, uh, you know, not in an oppositional fashion, but we'd like to collaborate with them so that the, the those issues that they're upset with too, honestly, uh, we can iron out and, and have a better tech platform that, that's uh, a little bit more reliable. Uh, on the topic of environment, um, you know, when I started teaching, I remember looking in the, the photom and it says, this is an approved room for a ground school to be in, and the FAA had to sign those things off. Now the onus of the, the classroom environment has been shifted to the pilot. And I don't know about you, but um, a, a lot of you out there probably have kids and family members and neighbors and dogs barking and, and a myriad of distractions that can uh, lend themselves to to be a problem as opposed to sitting in a, a classroom that's been literally signed off as an appropriate training location. So um, that has presented itself as a difficulty, and I know that that um, there are some things in the works that that, that we're trying to, to strive for to, to give people an environment um, that's that's both legal for rest and and a, a atmosphere conducive to learning. Yeah, and I think this this is the age-old tug of war between cost and quality of training, and we see this everywhere, right? We want to have an efficient training footprint because that's what drives reduction in cost. So that's why all of you that have gone through the CQ, they, you experience that you know, 3 a.m. sim on EET, and then you back up to do your MT the next day, and then you back up even farther to do your LOE the following day. Uh, it definitely gets you in on day one and gets you out on day three, but if you have any concerns or hiccups during your training footprint or you want a little bit of extra time to work with your sim partner, that kind of schedule doesn't really avail itself to that. Um, so I will tell you that, that Ben, I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment. When we when we were first told, hey, COVID is going to cause us to go to this uh, remote training environment, we said, sure, we understand. We understand the schoolhouse is down, but we still need to have pilots that, you know, get the, tr the necessary training. When it became clear that this was just going to be the kind of modus operandi for the company, and this is how they were going to operate moving into the future, you know, I expressed some concerns um, at the table about the quality of training being lost because of all of the things that you just said and all the distractions that we can experience at home. And, and I said, you know, look, I, I understand that there's a quality of life benefit to the pilots being able to choose where they do this, but there's also a degradation in training as well. And, you know, they pointed out that this is how Delta trains, and it's been a successful model, at least from their perspective, at the Delta mainline platform. But I think that there's a big difference between right now a Delta pilot and an Endeavor pilot, a mainline pilot and a regional pilot. I mean, you're, you're talking about pilots that could have 20, 30 years of experience, tens of thousands of hours. Even if you're brand new FO at Delta, you probably came from the ranks of either 121, corporate or military, and you've got a lot of experience. The pilots that are coming through our training footprint, they're brand new. They came from GA, they came from flight instructing, 
they came from some other avenue that hasn't given them this kind of professional training environment. So the first time they go through a CQ, like you said, it could be with the, the kid that's crying in their ear and the dog that's barking. And is that really the best quality? And so we, we are concerned about that. We continue to have those discussions with the company. Yeah, I agree. There can be differences, uh, certainly from one carrier to the next. Um, and I have a couple of things I'd like to say about that. But, you know, before I before I get off the topic of of the environmental concerns, uh, being by yourself at your home or in the hotel or wherever you're at, taking a distance learning course, um, whether you're a Delta pilot and this is not your first rodeo or that this is the first time that you've gone through 121 training, isolation can really have an effect on you because how many times have you gotten together at the hotel with a study group when you're in ground school? How many times have you had a great conversation in the lunchroom where you go, oh, I understand why that limitation's there now or, or what this valve is really doing with this automated feature on the aircraft? And a lot of those connections are lost. And if you're somebody that, that uh, everybody's psychology is different, some people have no problem picking up the phone and saying, hey, how does this work? And, and some of those groups can still uh, fashion themselves. Um, but if you study on your own. Um, That's okay, because what you're really saying is you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes you may absolutely. have a gaping hole in your knowledge base, but how are you going to recognize that until you start listening to the conversations of your classmates and listening to the conversations that go on in an environment where you are all in the same room? That's exactly right. Uh, I like that phrase, you don't know what you don't know. And I learn from my students. I'm an instructor, I'm a check pilot. I'll be running an LOE or running a ground school and somebody will bring something up or they'll have a different mode of operation thinking and I go, wow, that's something that I wanna put in my toolbox. And so to be completely isolated on your own, sitting at home, it presents a challenge and, and I don't think that can be overlooked. One more technology piece that I think is worth talking about too is how many times have you sat in a ground school and um, you've got papers spread all over the place. You've got a paper tiger, you're looking at a poster, you've got a systems manual open, you've got the presentation screen uh, up in front and you're utilizing all those resources. It's kind of hard. It's kind of like flying flight simulator versus a CRJ to have it all on one iPad and you're yes. juggling apps. And um, there's just some technological challenges that are still being ironed out there from how we've traditionally done business. So uh, definitely a different environment. Now has this? Have you seen any uptick in failure rates, whether it's in the ground school environment or otherwise thus far? So getting down to the actual data, I can't claim to, to have a, a solid answer to that, but um, just speaking from the unsats that we've seen coming in over the last several months, uh, we have had several ground school unsats. Um, now, the reasons are always individual to that, that case. Uh, but we have had several pilots express concern that, you know, it's an open book test, but I've got to switch back and forth between apps. Um, some of, some of those, th those things have been noted. Um, I guess as to whether we have more failures than traditional from a ground school or from a face-to-face -face ground school, I'd have to talk to records and I have to look at that. But there has been an unfortunate uh, steady trickle of, of a few unsats sprinkled in each month. Well, I think that's all really good information, Ben, as far as the distance learning is concerned. But as you alluded to, we're not the only carrier that is facing this distance learning challenge. And every carrier seems to be doing it slightly different. So why don't, uh, why don't we segue into your work at the national level, your national positions, and some of the things that you have or challenges you're facing there and some of the solutions that you're trying to drive with your team? 
Sure. Yeah. And uh, I want to talk about my team there, too. It's certainly not just me uh, involved with this. We've got, like I said, a great uh, group of instructors working on this committee. And I'd like to, to thank both Michael Leary and Steve Shields uh, as they've uh, been in attendance with me out in Washington, D.C. over the past couple of years uh, at the training council meetings, um, which our human factors and training working group is always present at as well. So what we do out there, and, and keep in mind, I'm a fairly new member uh, to, to some of the work that's out there, but the training council for sure uh, we've been out there uh, with a pretty good presence over the past two years at least, and we're hearing the issues not only uh, bringing forth the concerns that we have here at Endeavor, but we're sharing notes with the other ALPA carriers when it comes to whatever training concerns they have, what's working well for their pilot groups, what isn't working well for their pilot groups. Um, and sometimes we've seen commonalities. Sometimes one carrier is doing something completely different and the rest of us can help that person or, or that, that MEC, that training uh, committee at that individual carrier. So um, it's a group of heads rather than us navigating changes to the industry alone. So Ben, we know you're a member of the National Training Council. And as we said, you're also a member of the Human Factors and Training Work Group within the ASO. Why don't you explain to the listeners what the difference is between those two positions? Yeah, and that's great. Um, that's a good question. Um, I think it's good to describe what resources you have out there as an ALPA pilot and who's working on your behalf, because uh, a lot of times um, we just don't know. So um, the training council, like I explained, is, is kind of the day-to-day -day training and checking concerns uh, at all of the ALPA carriers. So how can we help each other? What airlines are dealing with what issues. Uh, it's the day-to-day. -day. Uh, the Human Factors and Training Working Group is a group that's within the, again, the air safety organization, just like the Training Council. But it's more of, a, instead of the day-to-day -day triage, it's a working group that anytime there's any notice to propose rulemaking or any changes that are being discussed in the industry or a need for change, we're the labor group's voice uh, on what our, our concerns are, what our opinions are, uh, what we think should be done uh, anytime there's going to be rulemaking or change. Another thing that... In rulemaking, you mean like the FAA rulemaking? The FAA, process. yep. So we work with AFS 280, which is a working group of the FAAs, to, just to kind of explain it in common terms. Uh, it's their working group that decides what we need to do in our SIM programs and our AQP programs, how we train airline pilots. So we work with the FAA on a national level um, to make sure that our concerns are, are, are heard and we all have the, the same common uh, goals of, of providing safe and efficient training. Uh, one of the other things that can be done is, is from time to time, uh, ELPA National will put out what are called white papers or position papers on any issues that we find are pressing and need to get information out. Uh, that information could go to the FAA, it could go to our membership, it could go to members of Congress, um, it, it's just our way of, of putting our voice out there with any human factors or training topics. And of course, we've been talking about distance learning. That's one of the things we're working on right now uh, on a national level because the carriers we're finding out, um, and this is not to label any one carrier group good, bad, or otherwise, it's just we're all trying to navigate these changes together. And in an otherwise standardized industry, we're seeing a lot of different types of distance learning uh, across the board. So sometimes it's synchronous, sometimes it's asynchronous. Uh, some people are still doing face-to-face -face, um, and, and we're just trying to be a voice 
to make sure that it's standardized, it's safe, all Alpha pilots are be tra being trained to the safe, same safe standard. Well, and that voice has a tremendous amount of credibility. Alpha has a tremendous amount of credibility in, in a lot of different areas, but especially in safety and security. In fact, if you take a look at Alpa's homepage, the banner says advancing aviation safety and security since 1931. It has been one of the core missions. And because we've been so consistent in that message, we do have a credible voice. So when there is proposed rulemaking, they want to hear from us. And oftentimes, maybe not all the time, but oftentimes they're taking our advice and they're taking our direction, which is great. That's right. Excellent. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up the podcast with uh, letting the pilots know, Ben, if they do have an issue, how is the best way to get a hold of you or the Training and Testing Council? Yeah, there's there's uh, a couple different ways. Um, so like I said, we come in and do class visits and I'm always sharing my personal phone number, but it's sometimes hard to get uh, the chairperson at all hours. So we have a, a email address that will go to everybody. Uh, and then we, I'll share that in a second. We also have on the app, if you have the ELPA app, which I highly encourage, you can see who all of the, the committee members are and, and know who your resources and, and reps are. Um, and on the Endeavor MEC website, you can find all of our contact information. But just a nice quick uh, something to jot down uh, before you take a look at those is EDV training and testing at alpa.org is an email that will go to all of our members. So if you just have a general concern and want to reach somebody, uh, somebody from the committee will get back um, quickly. Uh, and you're always welcome to call me directly if you get my phone number too, and it's posted on the website in the app. Excellent, Ben. Well, thank you for coming in, sir. We always appreciate it. And thank you for giving our pilots the insights on training and testing. Thank you for having me. So as always in every episode, we like to answer a question from you, the frontline pilot. If you have a question that you would like answered, please send it to edvonair at alpa.org. That's edvonair at alpa.org. So this month's question comes from Tyler Wisbar. He is a first officer in the CRJ 200 in Detroit. And Tyler would like to understand why we do not operate a common type between the 200, the 700, and 900, as is done at other properties such as, as PSA and SkyWest. And it's, it's a great question. It's a fair question. We've had uh, discussions with management about the possibility of running a common type. Endeavor has shied away from that uh, in the past and probably will continue to do so, mostly due to the volatile nature of the CRJ 200. As you know, earlier during the pandemic, it was predicted that the CRJ 200 would actually start winding down uh, at the end of this year and then through the remainder of 2022 and 2023. There seems to be a stay of execution on, on that uh, product as we start to resurge the 200 once again with an additional 10 frames here, but they are still at least at this time slated to uh, be parked inside the desert sometime late 2022 and moving into 2023. Now we can all speculate whether that's actually going to happen or not, but if that is the plan from Delta at the moment, it really wouldn't make sense um, to take the pilot group and put them through training on the 200 and dual qualify them between all of the variants and spend those resources that are necessary to do that for a frame that we may not be operating in the future. So that's that's been their hesitancy. Their other constraint in the past was SIM capacity. There just wasn't the SIM capacity 
to hire, to do CQs, to do upgrades, and to get dual qualified on all of the variants. So that has been some of the constraints in the past and, and why they haven't been willing to look at that. Uh, and I don't necessarily foresee that in the future, but it's a great question, Tyler. And we will be sending you a gift from the MEC. We appreciate it. And to everybody out there, stay safe on the line and we'll talk to you next month. Take care. Send everything to 531, runway 28, quit the